Welcome to episode 5 of the second season of the Books of My Life podcast. I'm your host, Hardith Al-Bastani, Arts and Culture Editor at The National. In this podcast, I explore the roles that books and stories have played in the lives of a number of influential figures, spanning a range of backgrounds. But before we start, make sure to subscribe and follow Books of My Life on your favorite podcast app to get all the new episodes as soon as they come out. Shahada Shamari has a profound relationship with literature. After all, she credits it with saving her life. And yet, one can imagine she saved many more through her own work. Diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at a young age, she's overcome great physical and mental obstacles to become a beacon of inspiration through extensive writings on disability and gender in the Arabian Gulf. Her memoir, Head Above Water, shines a light on the rarely heard non-Western narratives exploring illness, and she brings a crucial female Arab voice to the conversation. When we met, she discussed how the classics and Arabic literature drove a passion for life and a recognition of the power of taking the road less taken. We also discussed the importance of starting conversations around depression at a time and place where there's still so much stigma around mental health, as well as a need for more representation of people living with disabilities in film, TV, and literature. Most importantly, however, what became clear was just how important it is for people to simply listen to those telling their stories because we all have stories to tell, and it is precisely through those stories that we feel seen and heard. Correct me if I'm wrong, the name of your session, the name of one of your sessions is How Literature Saved My Life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and at the risk of asking too simple a question, how did literature <laughs> save your life? Yeah, actually, it's a really big question. Um, so I'm an assistant professor of literature. I teach literature. Uh, but I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis MS at the age of 18, which is a very, very young age. And at that time, I was told by a lot of doctors, you know, not to study, not to work too hard. Um, and I, I felt completely, you know, alone and devastated. And at the time, I just kind of went to literature and books. I started just, you know, reading. Um, I started searching for, you know, poetry about illness. Uh, novels that featured, you know, uh, people, you know, who were struggling with some sort of mental or physical illnesses. And the more I read, the more I kind of felt less alone. And so I made a career out of it. Uh, I ended up doing, you know, my master's and my PhD in English literature, um, graduating, you know, with a PhD at the age of 28, very, very young. And I was kind of like on a, on a mission uh, to just stay alive more than anything. And so we called the session How Literature Saved My Life because I, I was going to talk about how literature can save all of our lives, not just, not just mine, but how, you know, the more you read, the less you feel alone. And what were some of the works that stand out the most during that period in terms of the novels or the, or the poems or the collections that most resonated with you at that time? So I read pretty much all the classics. <laughs> I read uh, Jane Austen. I read the Bronte sisters. Um, but I also read a lot of Arabic literature at the time, too. So I, I read a lot of Mahmoud Darwish, who is a Palestinian poet. And, you know, the more he talked about, you know, love for the nation and the sense of confidence and, you know, this, re this rejection of despair, you know, constantly feeling like there is a reason to keep fighting, to stay alive. And the common theme was always, how do I stay alive? And most of these writers, um, there's also Robert Frost, American poet. Um, one of his really, really famous poems is called The Road Not Taken. And in the poem, he just says, um, what, what kind of um, 
person would I be if I didn't take the road that was less taken, um, the road that a lot of people would kind of shy away from. Um, in that in that poem, he says, you know, I took the road less taken, and that has made all the difference. And the more I heard that poem, I read it, I heard it, I kept realizing that, you know, sometimes you will end up taking the road less taken, and it does make a huge difference in your life. So, for example, you get diagnosed with an illness, or one of your parents or loved ones dies very early on in, in your life, and it, it really completely transforms you. Um, it's not maybe the common experience for a lot of you know um, young people, but it is the experience that changes your life. And for me, I realized that a different experience didn't have to be the end of the world. Although the majority of of um, you know medical doctors of of uh, older individuals in society, different generations, people just kind of wanted to shy away from illness, and 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 there was a sense of despair more than anything and again that's that's where literature comes in well the beautiful thing about about your story is that there's almost this alchemy of transmuting like you say this despair yeah into something that everyone around you everyone familiar with your work finds very uplifting um through like you say that the road that's left traveled yeah yeah and is that something that you try to bring to literature yourself i think so i mean i'm I also don't want to kind of push this very, very positive, upbeat approach because a lot of people will tell you I do live with uh, depression. I live with severe depression. Meds don't don't seem to be working. I've tried yoga. I've tried everything. So a lot of people have different approaches to how they handle, you know, like the the despair, like you say, or how they handle these difficult life experiences. What I am trying to do is just again start a conversation. There's so much silence around depression, around mental health, around disability, especially in this part of the world, in the Arab world in general, even more so in, in you know, uh, the GCC. And um, so I, I live in Kuwait, but I'm also quite connected to a lot of uh, scholars and students in the GCC. And they usually say the same thing. Our students or, you know, young people will struggle to tell you, hey, I live with severe depression. I can't meet your deadline. I can't seem to get out of bed. There's so much shame around that. And what I'm hoping my work will do is just kind of destigmatize or begin to move away from complete shame to at least let's just talk about it. You don't have to embrace it completely and persevere and be uplifting, but at least sort of come to an acceptance that this is part of the human experience, whether you're a man, a woman, old or young, it affects everybody, especially illness, whether you get ill by age or you get COVID and you get long COVID, which now everybody's talking about, it's just part of the human experience. So why the shame? Why the hush-hush around it? There's so many interesting points yeah. you made there. I mean, one of the things that, that's, that, that really struck me was when you are going through difficulties, sometimes the last thing you want is this one of these Happy. uplifting, <laughs> this is my great, you know, yeah. I had, I, my life was awful and I was dealing with all this and now suddenly everything's perfect and it's yeah. just about being positive. <laughs> that's, but when sometimes yeah. you just need the whole spectrum of, of things absolutely, and you need some, some a reference that's real. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, like you say, especially in this region, there is this stigma around it. Yeah. The stigma around the world, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in terms of people not feeling comfortable talking about mental yeah. illness or mental health. But even more so in this region, like you say, there's that shame. Shame, yeah. Um, and it seems to be something that 
hasn't really changed a great deal. Absolutely. Do you think things are changing, or do you? Th- and what do you think is the key to actually be able to to change? Yeah, <laughs> at least start the conversation. Um, so I, I'm quite active on social media, and I see a lot of uh, younger people. So you know, the younger generation, twenties, and so on. Uh, there's a lot of social media awareness now when it comes to mental health specifically. So you see a lot of social media posts. Uh, you see things like you know. Um, these are my boundaries, a term that we never actually used to, to used to even mention. Um, uh, there's a lot of, you know, talk about, you know, I will have good days, but I also have bad days, but this is still me. So I think we're starting to look at mental health as complex, not so much the physical body. So we're kind of starting to talk about me- mental health and, and um, mental illness, but we're not really talking about the physical body whether it's, you know, um, male or female, we're still kind of shying away from the body, but there is a bit more confidence when it comes to talking about mental health, at least on social media. Uh, Invisible disability is not a thing yet. People still don't talk about it. And like you said, it's everywhere in the world, actually. Um, I, I lived in the UK for quite a while, and it was very similar in terms of how people responded to invisible disabilities. There's always a sense of, well, if I can't see it and you're not on a wheelchair, then it's not real. And um, if you say, you know, I, I live with MS or I live with epilepsy or Parkinson's, or all these different visible uh, diseases, people will still want you to prove it somehow. I think it's just bizarre that, you know, humanity is still really limited when it comes to how we envision the body. Um, we kind of approach older people with a sense of more empathy and understanding, but you see somebody young on a wheelchair or you see somebody young who's uh, struggling, uh, like holding a cane or something, and then people get really uncomfortable and awkward. But with with looking at older people, there's a sense of almost, you know, awareness or acceptance that that's part of age. So I think there's a bit of, of a change. I can see it on, on at least, you know, with the younger generation. And like I said, I still teach at university. And I see that they're more comfortable saying things like, um, this is bad for my mental health, or I live with social anxiety. But if if one of them, let's say, has epilepsy, they will struggle to tell you that they might have an episode in class. And then they just don't tell you, and you're just surprised with it. Um, so I think the body is still something we're ashamed of. The mind, we're getting there. We're starting to talk about the mind. And do you, where do you think that stems from? The, when you talk about the physical side of it or the body side of it, where do you think that stems from? Where do you think that's rooted in? I think um, there's a lot of mental health campaigns all over. Um, we In Kuwait, we've got a lot of mental health campaigns, a lot of awareness. There's a lot of advertisements now on, on TV and on social media about you know depression, what it looks like. It can look like... Uh, somebody who's functional, but on other days, you know, non-functional. So I think um, especially the medical community is now trying to raise awareness about mental health. School counselors are trying to raise awareness about mental health. Teachers also. But again, uh, the body is something even more marginalized. Um, Invisible disability is, I would say, I think, I mean, not sure about the stats, but I think it's more um, either undocumented, unreported, or just, you know, less uh, people are living with invisible disability. So I think the conversation 
still needs to be pushed um, even on television and advertisements. So you do see some movies, some Hollywood movies, you see some Khaliji television, um, uh, television series that actually have a character living with some sort of mental uh, health issue. But you don't see, you know, many people on wheelchairs. You don't see many people living with epilepsy, like as a character on television. And again, because you don't see it, we're still not talking about it. And and are there cases where, when you do see characters who are living with epilepsy or any other anything, do you find there are cases where I mean, are they typecast in certain roles, or is that written around the character, yeah. or is that just kind of incidental to? to <laughs> it's usually actually, I think it's usually a very stereotypical, like you say, uh, it's a very stereotypical image. So, for example, most uh, female characters on television, if they are, you know, in, in in a wheelchair, if you see them, and it's very rare then she will be left behind somehow or have this tragic love story or also incidentally is suicidal because of the disability and it seems to overlap somehow. So it's a very tragic view. Um, so sometimes, you know, I wonder whether, you know, just actually having representation on screen is important or whether it's the right kind of representation. It can be really, really stigmatizing. So you get a lot of people seeing that on television, like gathering around um, for a Ramadan musalsal, and then what they see is something really, really tragic. And that just scares people even more from from even talking about, you know, illness. And uh, again, it kind of just further, you know, reinforces this idea of this is shameful. This is tragic. Nobody's going to love you. You're not going to get a job. You're not going to get, you know, kind of integrated into society. So yeah, I think I think there's a lot more left to do, especially with um, you know writers and and uh, uh, screenwriters, not just uh, authors, but screenwriters and for television and so on. It's a really good point, actually, and it's not just it's actually very international. I'm aware that there's a lot of Japanese and Korean TV shows dramas yeah. where the focal point is always a relationship where one person has an illness yeah. and the other one doesn't, and the illness is a plot device. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, that must be very stigmatizing. <laughs> yeah, it can be very, very alienating and depressing. I know, you know, a lot of women who live with disability and, you know, when they see the stuff on television, it just further, you know, depresses you and you feel like even more outcasted because the representation is one that makes you kind of sure that this is going to happen to you too, which is really, really hard to live with, which gets us kind of back to how literature saves your life. It can also really, really destroy you. So whatever you end up reading and whatever you end up uh, watching really, really does have, I think, this really, really huge influence. Do you think there's any books that do a really good job of integrating characters with either physical illness or, or mental health issues or or any uh, uh, invisible disabilities? I yeah, think. absolutely. I think, you know, I'm noticing that with young adult literature, you see more of this. Um, so John Green has a few books that deal with uh, mental health and, and anxiety. And I think uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the really good ones. It really looks at anxiety and depression as not this death statement, but that, you know, there are ups and downs and you have days where you, you can kind of function and be part of society and days where you just can't. Um, I think still that there's a lot of um, young adult literature that's kind of moving forward and embracing the idea that you can have a protagonist with a disability. But in terms of adult literature, I think we're still kind of 
waiting for that. I haven't seen anything recently that's a bit uplifting, unless it's a memoir. With memoir, you get to see a bit more realistic, um, you know, storytelling in, in a way. Do you find there's something about the nature of storytelling where writers tend to go to kind of the simple extremes? For example, if they deal with topics of addiction, it's always kind of the most extreme kind of stereotypical yeah. cartoony kind of version of addiction. If it's dealing with depression, it's always a very kind of, there's not a nuanced depiction, but it's because I think writers maybe think that that's how they have. Do you yeah. think that writers feel like they have to approach it in that way? And, and how do you see that changing? Well, I think that's also really influenced by what uh, the media wants and what Hollywood wants. And again, like I'm thinking of all of these uh, blockbuster movies that were originally books. Uh, There's Me Before You. That that became like a bestseller, a young adult movie. And the guy's in a wheelchair and, you know, manages to find love, but also tragically doesn't want to, to, to survive. Um, so it looks at what it means to be alive with a, a disability. Is that a life worth living? So it is quite extreme. And, and it really sold. It sold, you know, it became a blockbuster and a bestseller. Um, the writing is great. I'm not saying that the writing isn't great. But I think also there's a sense that the audience does want to see something that that not only is tragic, but it also kind of makes you feel like, well, I'm sort of glad that's not me. There's a mm. sense of, you know, there's a sense of relief um, and also the sense of empathy. You know, I feel for you, but I'm also glad that that's not me. There's this kind of distance. And these things tend to really sell more than something that's just like a very blah uh, narrative where, you know, I live with this, but, you know, I'm also an average person. I think the the market wants to see things that are either really inspirational or really, really tragic. And both ways, I think, are they do a lot of injustice to people who are actually living with illness and, and disability. Um, they're marketed as either heroes or as, you know, these tragic villains. So I think with a bit more, you know, awareness uh, that writers can develop, so read more about disability, read more about illness before you decide to write about a character who lives with illness and trying just to kind of make them into this plot device, like you said. Are there any resources that you would kind of point to a writer to as a frame of reference? Um, so there's a lot of stuff online, actually. If you just type in um, how to write a character with disability, as simple <laughs> as that, you'll find that a lot of writers with disabilities actually have posted lots of blog posts and lots of like uh, how-to manuals and, you know, what stereotypes to avoid. It's just like a, if, if, you know, a, a, a male author decides to have a female protagonist what things to avoid? How can I still write this in a very authentic manner without being very, very stereotypical? So I would always say, talk to people before you start, you know, writing something that's in your head without actually, you know, asking either, you know, a woman living in a woman's body or, you know, somebody with a disability living in, in a disabled body. Um, I find that if I talk to a lot of people, different people, different races, different genders, different uh, abilities, as a writer, I feel more authentic. Um, I feel like I'm kind of able to think about, did I get that right or did I sell that? Because, you know, publishers want to see that and readers want to see that. So at the end of the day, I think it has a lot to do with author integrity and, you know, trying to find that balance between really, really selling and also being authentic. And also, also I think, probably a different approach to writing where you push yourself actually 
out a little bit more instead of leaning into the more obvious like kind of obvious yeah. air quotes kind yeah. of plot device yeah creating more nuance absolutely in that, in that process as well yeah which is a much harder job but i think as, as you know i have this view that if you're a writer then you need to be uh, willing to read about all sorts of experiences uh, and also be willing to talk to lots and lots of people. And what is, what is the one thing that you hope people will take away from your work? Um, so the book Head Above Water, uh, the title itself actually says Head Above Water. So um, we're not constantly, um, you know, swimming. We're not constantly drowning either. Uh, and that's the human experience. You're not going to have all good days and you're not always going to be happy and inspirational, but you're not always going to be feeling like you're drowning either. So for me, that's what I want the book to be about, kind of embrace this complexity of of living in any body, not just the disabled body, but any body or any mind. Um, again, I'm hoping that people will start thinking about invisible disabilities, people will start also accepting that it can happen to anyone. It's not something that you just, you know, can avoid forever. So we might get um, sick just by age, or you might uh, develop something just out of the blue, or you might get into a car crash, God forbid. So there's all sorts of things that can happen to us. And if that happens, how do I keep my head above water? That's, that's what I'm hoping people will start reflecting on. And I'm not sort of giving this um, full on clear answer, but I'm just kind of, you know, raising questions about, about how do we survive? How important is it for people to just listen to other people's experiences? Well, I love you for that question. <laughs> Such a great question. Um, most of the time, um, I've found that people don't just listen. Um, you know, even, even, you know, not just readers, readers, interviewers, people who ask you questions. Uh, the first question is, can you prove that this is in fact hard? Or how do we know that this is actually real? There's a sense of disbelief more than anything. And I think if we just kind of lend an ear, if we just listen, we need to kind of start listening with a bit more of an open heart and just accepting that just because this is not my experience doesn't mean that your experience is, you know, invalid or it hasn't actually happened or it's not as severe as you say. So I think we tend to disbelieve um, quite a lot. And I see this again on social media and I see it everywhere. Um, I think that's what we really need. We, we need to start listening a bit more to different experiences if we're ever going to get anywhere as not just... Um, not just men and women and, you know, Arabs and non-Arabs and, and Muslims and non-Muslims and people with disabilities and people without disabilities. But there needs to be this sort of conversation happening. And before the attack or before the questions being asked, you just kind of really need to listen. I, I hope people will listen. That brings us to the end of this episode of Books of My Life Season 2. I hope you found it as insightful as I did. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this, Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Angami, or your favorite podcasting platform. Next week, I sit down with comedian, actor, and children's author Ben Miller. Stay tuned for more captivating conversations and gripping stories. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Duaf Farid. I'm your host, Harith Al-Bistani. Thanks for listening.